It's Tuesday, November 30th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Big shakeup for Twitter's leadership as CEO Jack Dorsey stepped down on Monday with the company's chief technology officer, Parag Agrawal, assuming the top post. Dorsey had been serving as the CEO of both Twitter and digital payments company Square and said he decided to leave because the company is ready to move on from its founders. Salvador Rodriguez, technology reporter at CNBC, joins us for what to know about the leadership change. Next, some hospitals have been preparing to lose staff over vaccine mandates. Up to 30% of hospital workers aren't vaccinated and could face termination. In some areas, a reduction of staff could cause disruptions to services. We're also learning that a federal district court in Missouri just issued an injunction temporarily blocking the mandate in 10 states. Julie Wernow, health and medicine reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. Finally, love them or hate them, the holiday office party is back. This year, employees could be in store for a few iterations. The virtual parties are back, but with lessons learned. They won't run as long and could include a box of food or crafts. The in-person party also makes its return, but in much smaller groups. Ronnie Mola, senior data reporter for Recode at Vox, joins us for what to expect. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Prior to being the chief technology officer, he was very involved with product, both on the user side, you know, developing the timeline and getting users more engaged with that but also on the advertising side of things. Joining us now is Salvador Rodriguez, technology reporter at CNBC. Thanks for joining us, Salvador. Thank you so much for having me. Let's talk about the big Twitter news that happened on Monday. Their uh, CEO, Jack Dorsey, was stepping down effective immediately. The CTO of Twitter is going to be stepping in in his place. This is uh, some interesting news. Uh, I guess... uh, Jack Dorsey, for his part, has been fired from the or from the post before he came back. He faced another call for him to get out of there, but uh, still very synonymous with Twitter and, and social media in general. Tell us a little bit about what we know about all what's going on. Yeah, so it was definitely a surprising move. There wasn't any chatter that this is something that would be happening. And, you know, as you mentioned, Jack Dorsey, uh, he has faced, uh, you know, obstacles in the past. He was fired. And he, uh, you know, there, there was an attempt to, to oust him a year ago. Um, and a lot of that just stemmed from, you know, how different of an executive Dorsey is. You know, he is known amongst his uh, employees and his deputies as being someone that, you know, delegates and really trusts his lieutenants to carry out their departments. And, you know, he, he's known for traveling and, you know, he's got his, his weird beard and uh, meditation and all that. So it was surprising. And then at the same time, not surprising. He just marches to the beat of his own drum. And with Parag Agarwal, who is replacing him, we're getting someone that the folks that I spoke with today have told me is someone that thinks very much about social media in a similar way to Jack Dorsey. This is someone who has made their entire career at Twitter. Parag joined uh, 10 years ago as a software engineer. He worked his way up. Multiple people that I spoke with today told me that he lives and breathes Twitter and he has a vision for the future of social media where, you know, it's, it's one that's decentralized much more open. So social media more akin to that of email, where you can email from this client or that client and the other person will receive it. It doesn't matter which app they're using. Obviously, that's something that can't happen at the moment in social media. If you're using Facebook, only Facebook people will see it. If you're using LinkedIn, only LinkedIn. And they kind of want to mix that up. Yeah. And that uh, that project, was that the uh, project Blue Sky that he was working on? 
Yeah, so Project Blue Sky was like a research team that they they funded. And the point of it was to look into, you know, setting up these kind of open standards and protocols that would allow that sort of change to happen. And from what I'm told, Parag was uh, a central figure in uh, getting that off the ground. His main task was finding the person who would run it. And uh, yeah, and, and so that's kind of like been a pet project of him and Dorsey's. When it comes to Jack Dorsey himself, he was a uh a very busy guy. He was also serving as the CEO of Square, which is this uh, digital payments company that he started when he got let go from Twitter the first time. So he's been a busy guy. And this is kind of one of those things that why some people were calling for him to step down this the past time that he faced it. They were just saying he was stretched too thin between the two companies. That was a, you know, a challenge and a criticism that Jack faced when he was first even coming into the role back in 2015. Uh, lots of folks wanted him to choose and, and he didn't want to do that. He wanted to go the road of, you know, Steve Jobs and Elon Musk and lead both of his babies. And here we are six years later and he never really had to choose, uh, you know, by all accounts, he's leaving on his own accord. And, you know, I, I think we can say that he did have success with Twitter. The shares have been up 85% since he took over in October, 2015. The audience size has grown. And then, you know, I I think anecdotally as a user, I would say that the platform has certainly improved. It certainly has a long ways to go. And for Parag, that'll be, you know, quite the challenge because they have to reach some pretty lofty goals by the end of 2023 of getting to 315 million monetizable daily active users. And I believe it's something like 7.5 billion in annual revenue by the end of of, uh, 2023. So that'll, that'll be a challenge. But if you look at it, from the perspective of like money and growth aren't everything, you can also say that Twitter is like one of the the more friendly social media services in terms of not getting harassed, them taking a bigger stance against misinformation and whatnot. With Facebook, for example, President Donald Trump could be reinstated at some point in time. My understanding is that on Twitter, that's a lifetime suspension. So they, they've done more to take care of their users than some other social media services have. But that also is another point of contention, right? That the new CEO is going to have to deal with going forward because Twitter, among the uh, some of the other social media companies, you know, we're facing criticism about stifling conservative voices out there. So that's something that they'll definitely have to keep going, uh, you know, in, in how Twitter continues to operate going forward. Right, right. And that, that'll certainly be a challenge, um, not just unique to them, though. That's a challenge that most of the social media apps face and, and one that I, I believe is even more outsized for Facebook in particular But yeah, it'll certainly be something. And I think all of these tech companies, not just the social media companies, are just starting to get more and more uh, criticism and just like eyes looking at them from a regulatory and lawmaker perspective from D.C. with everything going on with antitrust. So I think Twitter's approach with Project Blue Sky and being proactive about just having open protocols, that's essentially their response, which is that, if we just open everything up, then, it, you know, how, how antitrust can it be, right? So, you know, they're being proactive on that front. But, yeah, we'll see, we'll see what happens with Parag. I mean, from my understanding, what I'm hearing, he is very technically capable. Like, he was running the company's technical strategy, you know, developing all of their machine learning technology, artificial intelligence technology. And prior to that, prior to being the chief technology officer, he was very involved with product, both on the user side, you know, developing the timeline and getting users more engaged with that, but also on the advertising side of things. So he definitely understands the product itself, but 
it seems like perhaps what could be more of a challenge will be, you know, what you're talking about, which is more on that public policy side of things. Salvador Rodriguez, technology reporter at CNBC. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Something like 30% of healthcare workers are still not vaccinated, and we're already in a situation where we have a worker shortage in healthcare. So, as you can imagine, in some places, that's a pretty scary number. Joining us now is Julie Wernow, health and medicine reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Julie. Thanks to be here. Let's talk about uh, these vaccine mandates that are coming. There's a few different deadlines for whether you're a federal contractor, whether you work in the healthcare industry, all sorts of things. But there are some hospitals that are already preparing to lose some staff over these vaccine mandates. In some cases, there's up to 30% of hospital workers that aren't vaccinated yet. This is uh, coming for that January 4th federal deadline. In some cases, you know, hospitals with very large staffs, they can weather those uh, staff shortages a lot better. Uh, In other cases, just the loss of one or two people really means that these hospitals can be in trouble. So, Julie, what are we seeing with these? That's right. It could be a little bit confusing for folks because there's a couple of different mandates and different deadlines happening. So the one we're talking about is a Biden administration deadline for any healthcare facilities that receive funding from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which is a very large majority of hospitals and other kinds of healthcare facilities. There's another deadline also on January 4th for OSHA that has been blocked by court. So that's confusing some people because they have been reading in the news, you know, that this was blocked. But when we're looking at this particular deadline that's just for healthcare workers, this is ongoing. What we're seeing right now is that this deadline's looming. January 4th, these folks have to have their workers vaccinated. There is the ability for people to apply for a religious or medical exemption, which some of these folks are trying to kind of use to hold on to workers. If you look nationwide, something like 30% of healthcare workers are still not vaccinated. And we're already in a situation where we have a worker shortage in healthcare. So as you can imagine, in some places, that's a pretty scary number. And the religious exemption thing has been a very interesting one. There are some places that are being really strict with those religious exemptions, uh, saying, you know, it's not really going to work. Other places, as you, as you mentioned, they're trying to retain their workers they're giving them pretty wide leeway to request those, and they'll probably approve them pretty quickly in those cases where the shortages are more critical. Religious accommodation ability is is actually, the bar to that is quite low. If you look at sort of federal guidance and what's happened, you know, in the courts over time, really all that a worker has to do is sort of prove that they have a personal belief that goes against the vaccine. And that might not even need to, you know, jibe with, for instance, what their church leadership is saying. It's a pretty low barrier to entry. But on the other hand, these employers also have a fairly low barrier to say no to these um, because all they need to do is say that this would cause some kind of undue burden, even just a de minimis burden, and they could reject those requests saying, we just can't accommodate you. And then there's a few states that are actually not even allowing religious exemptions. Maine was one of them. There's a couple more, I think, and there's lawsuits already pending in those. That's right. You know, Maine is a really interesting case, in fact, because 
in some of the rural areas there in Maine, they were already dealing with really, really acute health care worker shortages. So um, now with some of these mandates already have come down in Maine and workers are getting fired. I've spoken to several of them. And in some places, you know, the difference between a few workers being on the job and not being on the job can mean, you know, emergency rooms closing places where, you know, really like critical care is not available. You mentioned the disruption of services. What are we looking at? You know, because you mentioned the article too, you know, even if just a few people leave in certain settings, right, the disruption could be pretty big. That's right. And, you know, the, it, it can be a little bit easier to manage, for instance, in a market where there are several other large hospitals around where maybe the vaccination rates are higher. Um, we saw in New York State where they also have tried to block the idea of religious exemptions there, that um, one of the hospitals there had to, um, you know, eliminate some OBGYN services and another hospital nearby helped and stepped up to try to get some of those folks over to get some care. That's not the case in all parts of the country. I spoke to a hospital in Montana, for instance, that's in a very isolated area. They just outright said that, you know, they're going to try to get people to seek these religious accommodations because approximately half of their workers are not vaccinated. And when it comes to the religious exemptions, in a lot of cases, the people say they oppose the the use of fetal cell lines in the development of the vaccines. And to be clear, none of the vaccines actually have it in the final product, but I guess they were used in development and testing beforehand, right? That's right. You know, none of these vaccines contain aborted fetal cells. We're talking about testing and production of these vaccines involved cell lines that were grown in laboratories based on aborted fetal cells collected decades ago. And so these are like thousands of generations removed from the original fetal cell lines. But for some folks, that's just a hard no for them in terms of taking the vaccine. Julie, we're now health and medicine reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So you do this sort of fun little activity together and then maybe a quick speech or an award, but all wrapping it up within an hour, an hour and a half. Nothing like the four hours you might have spent at a, at a real life holiday party or what you might have done last year on Zoom. Joining us now is Ronnie Mola, senior data reporter for Recode at Vox. Thanks for joining us, Ronnie. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about the office holiday party. They're back albeit in a few different forms. They're a little bit smaller than they were before and uh, we kind mm-hmm. of have three different options. Obviously, last year was a big change. A lot of them were virtual. In many cases, those are back, but many companies have learned their lessons. We are having the return of the in-office party or you know, in-person. Everybody's getting together again. And then some companies are doing something completely different. Ronnie, let's start uh, with the virtual celebrations and uh, how they might be a little different this time. Yeah, the virtual celebrations, you know, obviously last year we were all trying to figure out what to do, what was going on. So a lot of companies waited to the last minute and then said, okay, you know, we're not going to be able to do this in person. Let's do it virtually. But they they sort of made the mistake that a lot of people do or companies do or things do when you try to make something, put something online that used to exist in the real world. And they tried to make it just like the regular office holiday party. And, you know, if, if you try to do something online, you just don't have the same tolerance for like how long a party actually is. You know, it's, it's much more fun if you're at a nice event with 
a drink in your hand and eating nice food rather than like on your couch. Learning the lessons from that time, what are a lot of companies doing this time? First off, they're making them a lot shorter. A lot of it is just, you know, one-way entertainment. Okay, we'll all go on and watch a comedian and here's, you know, expense a bottle of wine or expense dinner. Or it's just a, a lot of people are doing this thing where they send you a box, either of a drink mix or some sort of arts and crafts or some food. And then all together with your colleagues, you assemble it. Someone instructs you how to make a nice cocktail or how to put together a gingerbread house or how to make a wreath. So you do this sort of fun little activity together and then maybe a quick speech or an award, but all wrapping it up within an hour, an hour and a half. Nothing like the four hours you might have spent at a, at a real life holiday party or what you might have done last year on Zoom. Right, definitely. And that seems like a little bit of fun, you know, getting together, learning a little something, like you said, making a drink or something. You get something in hand to play with and, and, and all that. That's pretty good. There's a company called Chocolate Noise that hands out chocolate and uh, pairs it with wine and tea. That seems like it could be pretty fun. And that's a good twist on that virtual thing. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, it's much more tolerable when it's shorter. You have that quick activity, highs and hellos, and then uh, and then you can uh, finish that. And obviously, oh. there is also the return of the in real life holiday party. Now, this one's a little bit different, right? People are still worried about COVID. Got to take safety precautions. These ones are being held still, but in a lot smaller ways and sometimes outside as well. Yeah, and it really depends on your company, you know, what your company thinks is appropriate, how big your company is and where your company is located. But in general, when when they're deciding to have in-person holiday parties, they seem to be smaller, either break it up by teams or over multiple days or have it at a nice outside venue. Uh, that's another thing. They're pushing back the dates, either having it earlier in the fall or maybe in the spring to take advantage of nice outdoor weather so that you can have a bigger event, but you can have it outdoors. And you know, if you're living in a, a cold weather area, it's important not to do that in December. And then some companies are doing something completely different, which is pretty interesting. Sign me up for one of these. There's a company that I guess is uh, not doing the office party Instead, they're taking a company-wide trip to Hawaii, which sounds amazing. So some, some of them are, are, are thinking way out, way out of the box. Yeah, I, I think, you know, having not, for a lot of companies, they didn't even have a holiday party at all last year or did something online. And it's made a lot of companies rethink, like, you know, what's the point of a holiday party? And at its fundamentals, it's to celebrate your workers, you know, to show that you're thankful for all the labor that they put in throughout the year. So Obviously, taking them to Hawaii is a really good way to show that, but you could give them a bonus. You could give them extra days off. Part of it is the camaraderie, obviously, with your coworkers, but part of it is just simply saying thanks for your work. So there are other things than a, you know, a DJ and a kind of boring catered dinner then that are important to people. Yeah, totally. I mean, the additional time off thing, you mentioned in your article that Vox is giving people a week off for the holidays and everything. That's that's Yeah, we awesome. get the whole week off, which is yeah, I'm very pleased to have the whole week off. You know, normally you would have to work around. Some people would take off and then there would be a smaller staff and they would have to, you know, obviously pick up the slack. And it's just yeah. nice to give everyone the time off. Ronnie Mola, Senior Data Reporter for Recode at Vox. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.